Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, still available at all your finest retailers. So please go out, buy many copies. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience, and that's going to come into play later on today. And I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. And on today's episode, we're going to go to the pub and talk about the beer news. We're going to go uh, look at an unusual lager style in the library, talk about some new malt and something Denny just did for his anniversary. Before we get into the lounge and talk to, to well, about Craft Malt and the Craft Maltsters Guild. Yeah, really, it's a really interesting uh, story, and so please stick around and listen to that, and we'll get to that and everything else right after these messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Before we really kick into gear here, we have a few announcements to make, and Drew's going to start off by telling you about the Brew Files. Yep, Brew Files 98 came out last week, and then we're one more episode closer to 100 episodes of the Brew Files, which... But yeah, if you, if you want to get into that episode, it's all about triple IPAs, both Denny's take, my take, and the take of a couple professional brewers about how they make triple IPA so that it tastes... Like you've got a crop ton of hops in your glass. <laughs> a crop ton. Huh? <laughs> There's an interesting new phrase. Uh, and we also want to let you know that it's probably not a surprise to anybody, but the American Homebrewers Association HomebrewCon is going virtual again this year. Uh, online June 17th through 19th. Registration starts up soon, and uh, we'll put a link to that on our website so you can find it. Or you can go to homebrewersassociation.org and find out more about it. Uh, last year we had to go virtual also, and it turned out to be a really, really good event. And I assume this year will be even better. So uh, since we can't go to San Diego, let's get together online. But we're going to see you all next year in Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, that's the plan. <laughs> All right, and then don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. 
than by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's World Central Kitchen, an organization started by Chef Jose Andres that uh, helps provide food to local people in need. Uh, the way it works is this. Uh, say you have a disaster in your town. Not that we want you to, but let's say you did. And uh, a bunch of people need to be fed, like happened uh, here last summer with the forest fires. What happens is the World Central Kitchen hires local food vendors to provide food to people. So you give your money to this one big central organization, and it shows up later in your town or somebody else's town. We think this is such a great organization and so important that we are running this for an entire year instead of the six months that we've done before. And we're going to match whatever you guys donate. So please get your donations in. Go to experimentalbrew.com and click on the Patreon link. Throw us some money that we can toss to them and some of our own, too. There you go. And no feedback or correctional department of corrections uh, this week. But I did want to put in one fi- uh, one other announcement. We've got two episodes to go. Two? No, three uh, three episodes to go before it's the all Q&A. It's been a while since we've done one of these. So get your questions in. Please send them to questions at experimentalbrew.com or podcast at experimentalbrew.com or send up a signal flare We'll get your questions into the show. Yeah, and uh, as we always say, the sooner you get your questions in, the more chance you have of getting a decent answer to them, so we don't just have to make it up like we often do. There you go, and I think now, speaking of making things up, it's time for us to go have a beer. All righty. We're going to head over to the pub. We'll meet you there. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back to the Experimental Brewing Pub. We're at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in cyberspace today. And we're having a couple beers, and Drew has one that's almost totally alliterative. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so 
you guys know I've been doing these happy hours. We just recently did a happy hour with a brewing company called Pure Project uh, down in San Diego. It's now our farthest flung happy hour from the L.A. area. And Pure Project is a really interesting brewery. They're all based around being a 1% for the world company. And everything they do is all about minimizing waste, minimizing the use of additional chemicals, trying to take a real sort of earth-centric ethos to what they do. They also make a lot of uh, what they call murky IPAs and do some really crazy things. But their second best-selling beer and probably my favorite beer of the whole tasting despite the fact that we had like some really crazy off-the-wall things, was just their Rain Pilsner. And it's their not-quite-a-German, not-quite-a-Czech, not-quite-an-American pills uh, with actually some a real nice load of Hautau uh, Mittelfru in it, real simple malt bill. It was just clean with just a little bit of malt chew to it, and boy, was that a good way to start a happy hour. Boy, I love a good Pilsner, man. That sounds delicious. Yeah, and I'm actually really surprised to see, like, in, in the course of doing these happy hours, how many of our local craft breweries are doing some form of a Pilsner or lager. Yeah, and, and not very many of them are doing what craft breweries used to do, which was doing, like, a cheater lager, you know, where we made, oh, look, we made a Blondale, but we're calling it a lager. Um, this time I'm seeing a lot of the breweries that, that we're being involved with actually doing a real true lager-like experience. So that's the Rain Pilsner from Pure Project in San Diego, California. Highly recommended. Wow. Uh, I don't know if they distribute up here, but I'll keep my eyes open for it just oh, no. in case. No, they don't. They, they barely distribute in San Diego. <laughs> well, I guess I'll just have to depend on somebody to send me some. There you go. You might, you might need to make a buddy down in San Diego. Yeah, right. And for you, sir? Um, I am trying today uh, a little sample of a rye pale ale I made as a yeast starter for a big wee heavy that I'm going to be making. Uh, I, uh, I wanted to use the Y1728 uh, Scottish ale yeast for the, uh, the wee heavy. Uh, I always do. I really love it. And it's a really good yeast for about any kind uh, of ale. Uh, I haven't tried it like a, a pseudo lager with it, so I don't know about that. But uh, I put together a, a rye pale ale, 20% rye, uh, that was mecha-grade rye malt, along with their uh, Lamanta pale malt, uh, some uh, Columbus and Mount Hood hops. Geez, go figure, me make a beer with Columbus and Mount Hood hops. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, Pitched, uh, pitched a uh, shaken, not stirred starter of the uh, 1728 into it, and it made a really, really nice beer. Uh, you know, it almost has like a little bit of, of an orange thing going on it, and I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but I'm not going to complain about it. And I've got a great slurry for my, uh, my 10 gallons of Wee Heavy that will be coming up here before too long. Yeah, so, I don't think I would have thought of using something like a Scottish ale yeast in a pale ale. Uh, you know what? A lot of people do that. I know people who uh, use that yeast as their house yeast, and it goes into nearly everything. Because uh, it's a, a clean yeast, and it'll ferment great anywhere from about 55 to 65 degrees. I mean, it'll ferment well above 65, of course, but I don't care for the flavors going higher than that. So something to consider. Interesting. There you go. And now, of course, like you said... Favorite technique, you get a strong yeast cake for your wee shroomy. 
Yeah, because otherwise I would have had to make way too many big yeast starters, and I didn't want to do that. And this is this way I have nice, healthy yeast, a lot of it, and another beer to drink. There you go. And oddly enough, we'll be getting back to that question in, well, just very shortly at the end of the episode. That's right. <laughs> All right. And now to break into the beer news, a couple of things have happened, because, of course, a couple of things happen every time. Uh, the first one is City Brewing, which is a brewing company that you have more than likely had a few of their products and never realized it, has been purchased and sold to a consortium of people, including the company that owns Pabst Blue Ribbon. Now, you'll remember a couple of weeks back, we had talked about how Pabst had finally secured a brewery of their own. For years and years and years, Pabst was brewed by Miller. Then Miller and Pabst got into a scuffle, went into lawsuits, yada, yada, yada. Pabst actually switched their brewing to city brewing and or started to set up the, the transition over to city brewing. We were like contracted with them through some odd number of years. And then finally they got the Molson Coors company to sell them the Irwindale Miller plant. That's just a little bit to the east of me here along the 210. Well, that was a couple of weeks ago, but now Pabst has essentially, the, I should say the controlling group for Pabst, has bought City Brewing, which already owns two uh, brewing companies or brewing facilities, one in La Crosse, I think, uh, Wisconsin, and the other one in Memphis, Tennessee. And they do a lot of contract brewing, so like they do some work for S- Sam Adams, for instance. Um, but they, in part of that exchange, City Brewing, after being acquired by in part by the group that owns Paps, also agreed to acquire the new brewery that Paps just bought from Molson Coors. <laughs> so Paps is once again without their own brewing facility, dedicated, but are still working through city the way they used to. So it's a very weird transaction, but it's also kind of interesting because I don't think a lot of us think about that background level of contract brewing that's going on out there in the world. So like City Brewing, for instance, they make a lot of beers for Trader Joe's. Uh, they make a lot of beers for a lot of different uh, little companies. Uh, House Brewing uh, used to work out of uh, City Brewing, at least when they launched. And so you'll see a lot of these brands that either use City Brewing for launching their brand entirely or as backup capacity for when there's growth happening. So just very interesting. City Brewing sold, turned around, and bought another brewery and uh, shenanigans. <laughs> the world of business is weird. Yes, it is. But I thought that was I thought that was interesting because we had just talked about Paps picking up that brewery, and now of course Paps has sold that brewery, which once again makes Paps have no brewery. So Paps sold the brewery to a company that they own. Now, it, well, it's weirder than that. So Paps sold the brewery to a company that is now in part owned by the company that owns Paps. So there, there's a, a consortium called like the Blue Ribbon Group or Blue Ribbon Consortium. They own one third of City Brewing now. They also own the Paps brands and all those legacy grandfather brands, right? Um, and two other banks came in on the deal as well to buy City Brewing. So there's like three total owners of City Brewing, one of which also partially, uh, one of which also owns Paps. So it's, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, and now we go from hard to understand to why completely ununderstandable, right? <laughs> so, a, a brewing company over in Virginia called Maltese Brewing, which, of course, you know, given that I'm a member of the Maltese Falcons, caught my eye. 
they're in, I think it's Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, they, uh, they are trying to work with the Guinness Book of World Records to register one of their beers, Signal 1 2.0, as the world's hottest beer. And oh, oh boy, now there's, there's something to, uh, strive to achieve. Right, and so they're working, the, one of the owners of, um, of Maltese graduated from the University of Mary Washington, and he's actually working with a, a student in their Department of Chemistry and Physics to do all the ratings and try and figure out how much Scoville units this beer contains, and then submit that into Guinness to get that record. Uh, they use in a batch of this beer, and I don't know how big their system is, but I'm going to assume somewhere between 7 to 15 barrels, that they use 500 Carolina Reapers in that batch. And if you've, if you've ever had a Carolina Reaper, ow. Uh, I mean, I love spicy food. I love hot sauce. Sriracha goes on damn near anything. I make a peanut butter sandwich. It has sriracha on it. Um, but no. No. I'm assuming yeah, you're I no, just, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and I, I'm not only no, I'm why. I mean, <laughs> what's the freaking point? Okay, I guess one point is you get your name in the Guinness Book of Records. Wow. Okay, if that matters to you, then go for it, man. That's how it to do. Well, and I guess but, if you if you drink the beer, you get a, you get a free T-shirt. <laughs> oh boy! Does it mean you get to get buried in it? <laughs> I see lots of different things where people are going for the world's hottest such and such, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out why you want to do that other than for bragging rights because. And you and I both like really spicy food, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we grow a lot of hot peppers here, make things out of them. Uh, you know, I'm, when I go to a Thai restaurant, I get the food just about as hot as I can get it. But I just don't understand why you would want to do that to a beer or why you would want to drink a beer that was done like that. Yeah, I've only ever had really one chili pepper beer that I thought was worth a damn, and that was uh, from Harold. You know, down in uh, San Diego, Harold Gabranson. Right. And he made a jalapeno American wheat that actually was really, really good. But, but again, that was about expressing the fruitiness of jalapeno, not necessarily trying to blow your brains out with the spice, which this beer <laughs> clearly is. <laughs> yeah, really, man. I, I have to admit, my favorite pepper beers are the ones with minimal spice uh, and more flavor, but, you know, not, nothing that uh, I drink a lot of. Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. How many of our listeners would actually go and drink this beer? Because I know somebody yeah. would. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know. Obviously, somebody's going to. So let's see how many would and why. Now, and keep in mind that it's not like Drew and I eschew spicy food, but sometimes it just gets silly, doesn't it? Yes, it does. All right, and we're going to stay in Virginia uh, for some other news because Beals Brewing Company in Bedford, Virginia, where, uh, don't ask me where Bedford versus Fredericksburg is. I don't remember a battle in Bedford. Um, but they released a beer called Your Manager is a, is a B. Or actually, it's just Your Manager is B. Um, and no, the word is completely spelled out, but we're a family friendly podcast here, so we're not saying that. Um, and I love it. It's an American porter. It has a picture of their general manager on the, on the front of the can. 
along with the along with the quote from the email that got sent to them because apparently she was she was enforcing a mask mandate and actually kicked uh, one of the customers out who then wrote a nasty email and review of the company describing her exactly as well your manager is a bee and they decided well we're going to run with it and have some fun with it and they did and so they have actually uh um, they've released an American porter. Oh yeah, that's right. The, the quote was your manager is B and your beer tastes like hot or hot old orange juice, which actually given some of the hazy IPAs <laughs> in the world, that might actually be a compliment. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, but they, they put that all in the back of the can. They released this, uh, uh, Brittany, who's the general manager. She's actually worked there, you know, from like the very early days of the, the brewery and worked her way up to become the general manager of the place. So, yeah, she, they're really tight with her. And I just thought it was really hysterical that they were like, okay, fine, we're running with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say make that a badge of honor, man. Yeah, they, well, they said um, uh, Beals shared the backstory in two recent social media posts explaining that custom, the customer had previously visited the taproom in early November, but began harassing employees once he was asked to abide by the state's current mask mandates. Uh, he allegedly followed up with a vulgar email on November 7th. Uh, and the brewery wrote, we made this beer mostly out of a deep, abiding pettiness. <laughs> That's great. And they said, uh, mm. we, we, they, they even thanked the disgruntled customer for giving us an opportunity to stand behind general manager Brittany Cantonbury and the countless other service industry workers who come to work every day with unfailing optimism. So... I mean, look, if you're, if you're going to have to deal with the stresses and strains of working in the retail and food industry, sometimes a little deep abiding pettiness is exactly what you need. <laughs> yeah, really. I wonder if uh, they're going to let that guy come back. I would have to imagine that person got 86. I would hope so. Yep. All right. And then the last one... Uh, so we had just talked about how the HA has canceled, or not canceled, but moved this year's HomebrewCon uh, virtually. Well, the Brewers Association is also still working on GABF and trying to get that in, you know, still running. Of course, remember, they did a virtual GABF last year. And to that extent, that also means that the Brewers Association style guidelines have been updated. And they've added, you know, they've done the, the usual annual revisions. And this year, they've added four new beer styles to their list. Um Kentucky Common Beer, right, which we've had in the homebrew style guidelines for a little while. Uh, Belgian style Session Ale, New, New Zealand style Pale Ale, and New Zealand style India Pale Ale. So looking at like trying to do these, you know, more hop, more of this definition around, say, how you use your hops. So I'm kind of curious. I would, I'd like to dig in. And of course, remember the Brewers Association style guidelines are not like the BJCP guidelines where there's a lot of information and guidance given out around what they're supposed to be. These yeah, are more ba like... Basically what they do is that they look at what people are brewing and then they make a category for it so people can win awards for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so like for instance, they, they say here the, the New Zealand style pale ale is simply billed as exhibiting hop attributes such as tropical fruit, passion fruit, and or stone fruit, cut grass, and my favorite, diesel. <laughs> I don't see how that really distinguishes it a lot from many, many American beers. But well, you know what? Because it's because it's for the Brewers Association, I don't really even have to worry about it. No, but I think, again, this is their attempt to try and sort of 
carve out different areas of thought for people to win medals on or enter into. And, you know, so it's like, oh, if it's in a New Zealand-style pale, then it's got to be sort of this aromatic tropical fruity as opposed to, you know, American citrus and pine, right? That, that sort of thing. I mean, that's where I see them going with it. But, yeah, again, how much these styles actually reflect reality, you know, in terms of, you know, what we what might be appropriate taxonomy probably could be questioned. Uh, but in reality, this is what they're seeing commercially, and this is what they can get people to enter into because that's where people's beers are going. Yeah, right. And and again, keep in mind that that's kind of what it's all about. Uh, people are brewing these kinds of beers, so then the Brewers Association creates a category so somebody can win an award for them. Exactly. And so sometimes those Brewers Association guidelines get really wacky, weird, and very, like, splitty hairs. Yeah. So, all right, that's all the beer news I've got. You got anything, buddy? Uh, no, man, that's more than enough. <laughs> all right, let's finish these, and then let's get over to the library. All right, stick around. We're going to be back in just a minute. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Welcome to the library. There's books here. It smells like books. It looks like books. It sounds like books. What does a book sound like? Uh, it's very quiet, I guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Wait, hold on. Here, here's, here's what a book sounds like. Okay. Ta-da. Okay. <laughs> Drew says that was a book, so we'll just go with that. Drew uh, caught sight of an interesting article this week about a an old classic beer called Kumbacher that is actually seems to be brewed a number of different ways. So fill us in, man. Right. So Kumbacher is 
a beer style that uh, both rose and fell, you know, like a number of other beer styles. Uh, beer history is largely poor history, but it's also not static, which is one of the confusing aspects of it. Uh, this article in Good Beer Hunting is all about this Kumbacher style, which is sort of, well, it's a dark lager, you know, from uh, Kumbach, right? Uh, and except for there's a lot of stuff about, oh, is it Kumbacher with a C? Is it Kumbacher with a K? And, you know, different people expressing this differently, spelling it differently. And then what happens to it when it leaves its home territory? Because, again, they're saying that uh, this uh, this beer was originally named after its hometown, but then, of course, it spreads out and then things go weird from there. And so, for instance, it is it seems to be just universally, it is a darker, heavier lager, right? And when I say heavier, I mean a sweeter lager. So think like... I keep kind of trying to picture it in my head as something like a Bach beer and a Dunkel mix, if that makes sense. And yeah. the one recipe that they talk about in this article is in the Smithsonian, and it says it basically the the recipe from a Walter Voigt, um, who is a, a son of German immigrants born in 1906 and was a member of the Master Brewers Association of America. Uh, and he says the the malts used for this variety of near beer were high-dried, pale, caramel, and black, but no mention of any hops, corn, yeast, or anything else. And what's interesting, I think what we said, the high-dry in the article they talk about is like probably a call-out to something very similar to Munich. Yeah, um, I've, I've never heard of high-dried before, so I'm glad that they gave us a hint as to what it is. Mm-hmm. But then one of the confusing things, and this is one of the reasons why I like this article, is one of the problems whenever you talk about beer history, and we see it when you talk about things like IPA, when you talk about things like Porter, when you talk about mild, when you talk about old, the or even like, say, cream ale, you know, one of my one of my favorites, the meaning of the word changes over time and over history and from place to place. And while a lot of those words that we just mentioned are kind of um, generic, like cream, right, is generic, and that makes some sense that there would be drift, this thing, Kumbacher, you know, which is not a a generic word by any stretch of the imagination. When you're looking through in this article, it's talking that there's a whole giant wide range of what actually meant or what was actually meant by breweries when they said our beer is a Kumbacher, all the way from a lot of these beers being, say, around, you know, six, six, two type range, which was much larger than a lot of the lagers being produced during the time, all the way down to Paps, for instance, in the 1920s, producing a Kumbacher. That was a near beer. It was a 0.5% beer. <laughs> Actually, it says less than 0.5%, man. That, that's hard to even imagine. All right. So this is very interesting. And part of the reason why I like one, I like digging into this sort of history. But to me, it's also interesting just from the point of view of reminding us that things, things about beer are not set in stone. As much as we would like to be able to tell an easy story, as much as we would like to be able to, to, fit everything that we know about a beer into some or you know a style into some sort of procrustean bed where you know if if you're making an IPA it's got to be within this parameters uh the world of beer defies that sort of easy categorization particularly if all you're trying to work with is brewery x called this beer a kumbacher brewery y called this beer a kumbacher so they must have been kind of the same thing and we find this again and again and again throughout history. Uh, so very, uh, 
very, very interesting. But this, the article also exposes a couple of other styles, uh, you know, German styles, obviously, in the context of this one, that have been both sort of lost and found, like damp beer. Uh, but again, there's a there's a wide range of forgotten beer history. Yeah, man, it, and it's really interesting, and not only forgotten but conflicting beer history too. Um, it's just it's a good sign just not to take it too seriously. Enjoy it for what it is and then let it go. Mm-hmm. Well, and and like I said, don't don't get too hung up on trying to, you know, perfectly polish the meaning of a particular style because I can guarantee you the brewers weren't trying to perfectly polish a damn thing except for their wallets. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. They they didn't have style guidelines that they were brewing to. They were trying to make something that people would give them money for. <laughs> There you go. So again, we'll include an article or we'll include a link to the article. This was in Good Beer Hunting and, you know, really kind of nice, actually good in-depth article here about that particular style all the way from near beer to double strength beer to, you know, everywhere else. And it also really demonstrates that uh, prior to the prior to prohibition, American lager brewing just was not a Pilsner monolith. (laughs) No, very much not like that. Okay, well, that uh, that's a really interesting article. We'll uh, put a link to it on our website so you guys can read it for yourselves because it, you know, it is fascinating to see uh, exactly how this beer style has really evolved and changed into many different things. But before that, we're going to head over to the brewery, so stick around. We'll be back in a minute. From the Malt Innovation Center... Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Can you hear it? Can you hear those bubbles? The blurp, blurp, blurp. That's right. Blurp, 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 We're in the brewery, and it's time for us to talk about actually making beer. And, you know, Denny and I, we spent a lot of time talking about hops. We also really would like for people to spend more time talking about malt, which seems to be the inadvertent theme of the show. And it just happened that as we were getting ready to come to come to the press, that we discovered Baird's Malting Company, Baird's over in the UK, just did a, a press release about Malt 2.0, which, hey, Malt 2.0. <laughs> I'm going to wait for Malt 2.1 myself. But. There you go. Yeah, and, and, yeah ne- never, take the, never take the original major no, release. No, no, man, the, the first release, uh, you know, you'll be on the bleeding edge. Yeah, and so <laughs> this is a, um, a 
the result of a trial program that they put together trying to identify a new malt that they can really uh, use and, and grow in Scotland, right? So uh, one of the big varieties out of Scotland that we mostly know is Golden Promise, but Golden Promise is nearly 50 years old, which in the barley game is beyond antique. I think it's only eclipsed by Maris Otter, for instance. Uh, but yeah, 50 years is an unusually long run for a malt variety. And so Baird's was working with uh, Scott Grain Agriculture to identify a new variety of malt that they could grow or barley that they could grow in Scotland and then use to make barley malt with it. And I got to love the fact that they're saying at the heart of our malt 2.0 is KWS Sassy, which is a I big, love it, man. yeah, which is a big, bold barley variety. <laughs> I know, man. Sassy barley. I mean, you got to just love that. Maybe that's what maltsters need to do. They just need to come up with, you know, more, uh, more fun names for, for everything. Yep. I agree. Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, Seth was going to call that malt variety. He developed white buffalo or something like that, but, uh, that the name was trademarked, so he couldn't use it. Yep. Oh, well. But, uh, so this is, this is interesting. It's not, I don't think it's come down to us at the homebrew level just yet. It is uh, actually available in North America. So if anybody's actually gotten their hands on Baird's uh, Malt 2.0 or the Sassy variety stuff, uh, let us know because I'm really, really curious about this. It's kind of also nice to see you know, some new things not only being developed because new barley varieties are being developed all the time, but also to hear people actually talking about them. Yeah, you know, and it's a trial, so there may not be much, if any, around here yet. Exactly. So let us know if you've if you've run into you know the malt itself, which of course probably not, or if you had the ability to actually taste a beer, which is probably more likely, that is uh, made with malt 2.0. <laughs> and if you have, uh, compare it to malt 3.0. <laughs> yeah, and if you want, you can actually you can actually dig up more information by looking at Baird's dash malt dot co dot uk slash malt dot 20 i don't know why they guys all remember that yeah it'll be on the show notes but you know still i thought this was interesting just to see um give it give it a shot if let us know if you've if you've heard anything about it i'm just super excited for us to have more malts to play with yeah, I agree. It's, it'll be interesting to see what comes of it uh, and if it actually makes it over here and makes it into uh, real production. There you go. All right. Now, Denny, what about you, bud? Uh, you've had a big, uh, you've had a big uh, adventure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you call it a big adventure. Uh, yesterday, the day before we record this, March 19th was the 23rd anniversary of the first time I brewed anything at all. So I decided it was time to do batch number 577 as an anniversary batch. I looked at you know, a bunch of different stuff. I thought about a Doppelbach because I've, I don't know if I've ever brewed one of those before, but I decided, yeah, I don't really need uh, a lot of high alcohol beer around. So I settled on a Bach, which I don't think I've ever really brewed before too. So I whipped out uh, seven gallons of it on the uh, on the Grandfather G70. Totally smooth brewing day. Uh, from the time I mashed in till the time I had all the cleanup done, it was three and a half hours. Can you dig that, man? That is just 
Amazing. Uh, no, I'm assuming that's with presetting your water and having it preheated and all that sort of good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I went out there the day before and I milled the grains and got the water measured and treated and uh, set the grandfather to preheat so that when I walked into the brewery at, at 9 a.m., it was all ready to go and I mashed in and went from there. Um, I actually kegged that rye pale ale in the process while the mash was going on, but it, you know, it was, it was a very smooth process. The, uh, the only kind of controversial thing about it was that I thought that I would include just a hair of special B and I got uh-huh. a lot of comments on both sides of that. Now, now you didn't think I should go for it, uh, uh, our, our good buddy Keith Yeager, major vices on the AHA forum, didn't think I should go for it. Another bunch of people went, oh, go for it. What the hell? Give it a try. It, it was four ounces of special B in a seven-gallon batch. So I'm going to guess that it'll be something like, is there special B in there? Or maybe that's just the right amount but you know i, I don't think it's going to overwhelm anything with 4 ounces and 7 gallons of beer quite possibly i just i don't know if, i mean like i could see sneaking some special b into like a doppelbock um and even then i'd probably raise an eyebrow at it for me i would just rather have just a plain you know munich drived character and not any of the that extra little raisin thing that was the reason yeah, why i see- a lot of the box I've had have that kind of like raisin prune kind of dark fruit thing to them. So anyway, that was, that was my thinking. It was, uh, it was mainly, uh, Mechagrade Metolius, the Munich, uh, about, uh, oh, about a third of their Pelton, the Pills malt, uh, the four ounces of Special B and two ounces of Midnight Wheat just to kind of darken it up a little bit because I'm out of Cinemar. Uh, I pitched, uh, Yeast 2352, the Munich 2, which is, uh, one of the, uh, seasonal strains you can still get from Yeast for a very short period of time. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. It was a smooth, fun brew day. It was, uh, I kept looking at that G70 and going, this is very different from my first batch, which was, uh, extract of steeping grains that I did in the kitchen. Well, good. That just means you're growing. Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe in another 500 and some odd batches, you'll, you know, be brewing on a full commercial rig. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. You know what, man? Somebody wished me another 30 years of brewing and it's like, well, let me see. I'll be 99 then. Uh, I may need some help. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there'll be people around to help you. Um, uh, I hope so. All right. Well, and yeah, so that's actually a really good one. And I, you'd crossed. You said, yeah, yesterday you had crossed over your anniversary. Um, and mine, I know, was something like two weeks back, but about a year behind you. So there we go. And I forgot to brew anything special. Well, there you go. Whoops. All right. Well, hey, let's go <laughs> lounge. All righty. We're going to be heading over to the lounge. And uh, to continue the malt theme from this program, we're going to be talking to Jesse Bussard, the director of the Craft Maltsters Guild, about what the guild is, why it's cool, uh, the Craft Malt Cup, and why malt deserves as big a place in your thoughts as hops and yeast do. So stick around. We're going to be right back. 
brings new opportunities during our favorite winter months. Whether you're looking to hone your brewing skills, try new brewing techniques, or simply find the right après-ski beer, the Y-East Quarter 1 2021 Private Collection features European lager strains ideal for different skills, styles, and occasions. For light-bodied lagers and pilsners, you'll enjoy working with the 2001 Pilsner Urkel H strain and 2042 Danish lager. Beers crafted from these strains pair well with lighter food and are refreshing after after a long day of skiing. For brewers looking to craft beers that fill the belly and warm the heart, reach for 2352 Munich Lager. This strain can produce medium-bodied lagers for pairing with hearty meals and seasonal spices. Say farewell to 2020 and hello to 2021 with the feel and flavors of the Winter Lager Beer Private Collection. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Welcome to the lounge. We've pulled up these comfy chairs and poured ourselves a couple beers to go along with a couple I guess we had in the pub. So you guys can all listen to this interview I did with Jesse Bussard, the director of the Craft Maltsters Guild. Um, it was a, a really interesting and enlightening conversation, and I'm going to say right now, uh, you guys need to go check out their website, craftmalting.com. There is a ton of great information about how to evaluate malts, what to look for, and even better than that, lists of retailers uh, all over the United States so you can figure out where to get craft malt to try for yourself. So... Uh, Kick back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and listen to the interview that I did with Jesse Bussard. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the lounge, and we're going to be talking today to Jesse Bussard, the uh, executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild, which is a really cool sounding thing. So, hi, Jesse. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Denny. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll keep it real exciting. So, uh, oh, so let's <laughs> let's start by talking a little bit about you before we get into the guild and craft malt in general. Uh, where are you located? How did you get into beer, and how did you come to be the uh, executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild? Who? That's a long story. Um, I'll try. Yeah. To- Keep it relatively brief. Um, okay. So I currently live in Bozeman, Montana. Um, I think you're you're over in uh, Oregon, right, Denny? Yeah, I'm just a little bit uh, outside of Eugene. Yeah. Okay. I have I have some very good friends in Cottage Grove. Um, love oh, that cool. area. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I uh, grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, went to college at Penn State and University of Kentucky. So go Ninny Lions and go Wildcats. Um, but uh, my beer story kind of begins here in Montana, I would say. Um, you know, I got into craft beer when I was in graduate school in Kentucky. Um, but my my real kind of passionate 
uh, you know, story with, with beer uh, really began here in Montana when I started uh, homebrewing. Uh, this would have been like back in like 2013. I had mo just moved to Bozeman, um, was looking to, to make new friends, you know, meet people here. I, I really didn't know anybody. And I joined, I went to a local homebrew club meeting. And um, so my, my beer journey began with homebrewing, really. I mean, that was where it all kind of started. And then I got involved in the club. I started brewing beers. Um, and then I got finagled into becoming the president of the homebrew club and did that for about four years. Um, oh, well, you sucker. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, and then along the way, I, I, you know, a lot of those people in the club became friends or family in, you know, different capacities. And, um, there, uh, I met a, a very great woman uh, who's a, who's now a professional brewer here in Bozeman too. Um, that I started a business with called Fermentana. Um, is uh, we we call ourselves a, a beer events promotions company basically, and uh, uh, we started the first craft beer week in Bozeman, Montana, um, which ran has ran for about four years now. Um, the pandemic kind of put a squash to that, but um, we're we're still trying to maybe get creative once this thing um, is over. And then we also launched a women's beer education series at one point. Um, but along, we were doing events on the side too for other people. And a couple of the gigs that we got were um, the Montana Brewers Conference. We ran that two years. And then the Craft Monsters Guild was having their annual conference in um, Bozeman in 2019 and needed some event support. And I ended up getting, my company got hired to basically be event management uh, staff for the Craft Monsters Guild for this conference in Bozeman. And I was able to make that initial connection with the organization. Um, and then when the, the, exec, the uh, former executive director, Jen Blair, um, decided to, to move on to, to work uh, more deeply in the beer industry, she uh, she let me know that she was, you know, going to be leaving her position and, and told me that there would eventually be a, you know, job opening with the guild and said that she thought I'd be a really good fit for for running, you know, running the show here. So um, it, it all was kind of serendipitous in a way. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I, I know Jen from the uh, AHA Governing Committee. Yeah, isn't she great? I, yeah, I love definitely. Yep. She's a, she's yep. a, she's just a, a amazing woman that has done a lot of cool things herself. So, um, but yeah, I, I appreciated our, you know, that connection with her a lot because it's gotten me to the job where I'm at now. And, um, I've been working for the guild now for about a year. Uh, so I be well, it, it was a year in December, so year and three months. So when, when did the guild start and how many members are in it? So the guild started in 2013. It was originally founded by just a small handful of craft malt houses. Like I think it was like eight eight uh, maltsters in the beginning that kind of got this thing off the ground. And then um, today it's grown to we're like 550 members almost at this point. Um, of that 550 members, though, I, I always have to point out that you know 68 of those are member malt houses. The rest of those people in that membership are brewers, distillers, um, people that work in the malt supply chain, allied trade members, um, you know, researchers, uh, 
universities and um, plant breeders and, um, you know, just it's like the whole spectrum of the malt supply chain is involved in our organization. So for me, that's a really fun part because I get to work from grain to glass, basically, on every aspect of malt. Right. Yeah, I mean, I first became aware of craft malt, oh, you know, I, a few years back I, now, uh, when uh, when Seth Klon started up Mecca Grade, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'd kind of I'd kind of heard a little bit about uh, oh other craft malt going on, but wasn't really familiar with it. And now it seems like there uh, there are quite a few craft malt houses spread around, right? Oh yeah, there's probably I think I would say in the range of around 120 craft malt houses in North America at this point. Um, they're not all members of our organization, um, but you know they're uh, working in you know they're working in that local malt space. They're they're raising malt locally or, or uh, brewing. Yes, sorry, not raising, um, growing <laughs> you know local grain and malting it and selling it to local brewers and distillers. So um, yeah, there's the, the the industry has definitely like taken off since its inception or you know earlier uh, in 2013. So. Um, and I feel like even still with the pandemic, you know, that we we're still hearing about people with interest in starting a malt house or opening, you know, one or uh, it's it's there, there's been some transition in the industry, you know, some closures, but not a ton. And there's a lot of growth still happening. And it's really exciting, too, to see like craft monsters in other countries popping up and uh, getting involved with us as well. I mean, this year we had our very first ever international monster win a malt cup medal. Um, they were from Italy. It was wow. amazing. I know. And it was Pilsner malt. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> who would think of, I don't think of Pilsner malt when I think of Italy, but some of the best Pilsner malt in the world is being made in Italy right now. So. I've I've had a little bit of experience with uh, Gladfield Malt from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, okay. they're doing they're doing some very cool stuff down there. Do you know if there are any craft uh, maltsters in South America? That's a good question. Um, there <laughs> were a few folks that attended our our recent craft malt conference back in February right. that were from Argentina. Um, and they had interest in starting a craft malt house, and they were attending the conference to learn. Um, so I, I feel like there's the potential for craft monsters to be opening in um, in South America. And I, I have actually spoken with um, a Brazilian guy at one point who was also thinking about um, starting a malt house there. And I guess I guess there's Patagonia malt down there, which I think is from uh, I think maybe like Chile. Yeah, that would be probably Chile. It could be Argentina too, because Patagonia kind of like is in both of those countries in different ways. So um, yeah. Right. The last time I was down there was like five or six years ago, and uh, there was a a real dearth of uh, of malt other than Wireman there. But there were a few places like uh, like Tubinger in uh, in Santiago that were starting to get into using Patagonia and stuff like that. So it it obviously is a a, kind of thing that's like spreading around the world, and it's it's really cool to know that we have so much uh, here in in the United States too. So. So what makes a craft maltster a craft maltster? 
Okay. Um, so craft molds, we, we have kind of a, we have, we as an organization have put some guidelines around what we call craft malt. Um, and so we're defining craft malt through our guild as it's going to be, it's, it's, it's a product produced by a member malt house that um, produces between five and a half to 11,000 tons a year of malt. Um, they're going to source at least 50% of their grains within a 500 mile radius of their malt house. And that malt house is going to be independently owned um, up to a, a 70, by up to a 76% majority or more ownership. So it's really about, you know, it's about sourcing local. It's about small producers and it's about um, independence, really, which is very similar kind of to the, the same kind of uh, values that the craft brewery, uh, you know, craft brewing industry really abides by and, and looks to. So um, I think that, you know, we have a lot of similarities with brewers in that regard that we we want to recognize that we are small and independent and uh, that, you know, we support our local communities and things like that. One of the things that has always fascinated me about craft mold obviously is the flavor i mean it just yeah. it is so much more flavorful than you know big commercial malt and there's a wide range of flavors because all these different maltsters are working with different barley varieties and mm -hmm. they have their own processes and equipment for doing it and it's you know it, it's really fascinating to try different ones and compare the flavors and come around to like stuff that you know, fits your personal tastes or yeah. being able to go to like, you know, it's not just a question between Munich and pale malt. It's a question of who's Munich and, and whose pale malt are you, mm -hmm. do you want to, to use to get those flavors into your beer? Totally. Um, and yeah, there's definitely varietal flavor differences there. And there's going to be um, differences in terroir. Um, so, you know, depending on where it's been grown and what it's actually had to go through during that growing process. So, yeah, we've been learning a lot more about terroir in recent years. I mean, you know, first with hops, uh, you know, the example in that case that I always like to use is that uh, I've been getting Chinook hops from Michigan, which have a real kind of pineapple character to them, which is so different than the Chinook hops we grow here in the Northwest, you know, which is like pine tree instead of pineapple. And right. you can you can see that same thing with, with craft malt also. So let's talk a bit about your website, which for uh, all the people out there who are going to want to check it out is craftmalting.com. One of the cool things that you have there is a malt sensory page to help people kind of evaluate what they're getting out of malt. Um, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about what's there? And I mean, it says one of the topics there is why is malt sensory important? And I think that's something we need to talk about, too. Well, um, yeah, I think that uh, malt flavor is so important, and it's something that, like, we've talked just talked about. It's been really overlooked for a long time, and then along comes craft malt, and now all this, this innovation and creativity is happening in malt, um, and it's really pushing the, um, the, the flavor aspect forward and making it more diverse and interesting, which is just great for everybody else out there brewing beers because they have more products to work with, you know, to, to craft that great beer. Um, and, you know, where the sensory part of it comes in is it's, it's allowing you to kind of more deeply understand the flavor that malt contributes to your beer. Um, and so there's a, 
something called the hot steep sensory method, which I'm, I'm not an expert in, but um, we have some great people on our uh, board of directors that are really, really great at this. Um, but it's basically a hot steep process that you're, you're doing kind of a mini mash basically on a malt sample and then you're going to filter it out and you're going to be drinking basically a um, kind of like a wort. It's just a, a, a malt tea basically that you're making and um, doing a sensory evaluation of that. Um, and anyways, as a tool that we kind of do a lot of uh, talks about it with the guild, we, we uh, do trainings with it. Um, malts, you, you can actually go like and actually ask a craft monster to do this with you. A lot of them will actually do this as part of like their sales strategy with brewers uh, to, you know, they'll go and do a, a panel taste, a hot steep tasting with, with the brewers to let them really taste the flavor of the diversity of products that they have in front of them. Um, it's, they're just, you get so much more out of, uh, you know, sipping your, your malt tea versus just crunching on some kernels from a little baggie that, you know, the, the malt rep gave you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, very much. And the, the hot steep method is something that we've been advocating and talking about for oh, several years now. You know, it's really, really a great way to get a sense of the flavor of the malt. And uh, the other thing that I discovered with it, too, is that you can take these little uh, malt teas and actually kind of blend them together so you can get an idea of what's going to happen yeah. if you use like 20% totally. of, of this malt in with the other stuff and Definitely. things like that. It, it, typically, it's the hot, yeah, typically the hot steep method is really um, mostly used to evaluate like base malts, um, but you can use it with specialty malts. Um, what you usually do is you blend um, a portion of the specialty malt with the base malt you would already like be using um, to kind of see how that those flavors combine together. Yeah, I I use it. I mean, I used it a couple times to decide how much rye malt I wanted to use in, in a beer. Well, that's you a, know, that would to, be a great way to, to use that. Yeah, you know, and and we need to point out that obviously fermentation is going to change the character. Mm -hmm. But you do get kind of a general idea of where you're going. It, it works a lot better than making a hop tea, which has got to be one of the most disgusting things <laughs> I've ever had the misfortune <laughs> to put in my mouth. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that know? really doesn't yeah. sound fun to me. I've never drank a hop tea. Um, that That's weird. <laughs> it's it's it. It's pretty much a gag and spit experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, but yeah, I would I would advise people out there to definitely take a look at your website and the malt sensory page because there's some really really good information here to help people get started on on evaluating malts on their own. And the other thing that I really liked and that a lot of our listeners are going to be uh, really into is the homebrewer craft malt resources that you have. There on the website, uh, telling them where they can look for craft malts uh, in their state and someplace near to them. Uh, is this something that gets updated fairly often as, as craft malt spreads around? Yeah, it does. It, I mean, it's not like we're getting, <laughs> we're not updating it like we usually update it about monthly, I would say. Um, we usually get maybe one or two, you know, homebrew uh, stores a month that reach out to us and say, hey, can you add us? Um, and then a lot of our uh, maltsters also just sell direct to homebrewers, um, you know, either locally or online. And um, so we try to list, you know, the, the actual maltsters that also sell direct to homebrewers on there as well. 
Right. And again, going back to Mechagrade, I know that they just kind of reworked their website to have a direct to homebrewer section. Yeah. And I'm like, sure they're not the only ones. Like, I, just to say, you know, one that we just recently added, uh, Sugar Creek Malt Co., they've started doing a um, online, like, homebrew shipping kind of program um, of a, for a lot of their malts. And, I, you know, like, that's a maltster that is super popular right now. They're making some crazy stuff, um, you know, that a lot of adventurous homebrewers that probably listen to this podcast would appreciate. Like, uh, like what kind of crazy stuff? Like barrel-aged malt <laughs> or Nordic, you know, uh, Nordic smoked malts. Um. <laughs> wow. So, so that has like uh, smoked herring in it and stuff? No, it's, um, if you, <laughs> have you heard of Sugar Creek? Do you, do you, are you familiar with them? Uh, I, I, I'm, I am familiar with the name. I have not tried any of their stuff yet. My okay, experience you should been go check out their website. Much um, and maybe check out their, their social media. Um, Caleb Mashaki, who uh, started that mall house, he has a traditional Nordic Seinhaus on his farm where he um, wood smokes a variety of different malts. Um, but he, they're all traditional uh like European heritage and Nordic style malts um, that are just crazy wild stuff um, that, you know, and the flavors is just outstanding on them. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're looking for a really crazy, cool malt, that's where I'd start. Boy, that sounds really intriguing. Actually, yeah. You yeah. Know? And, if, uh, and if you like smoked stuff, like I do, I really like smoked malt and um, anything smoked really, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. <laughs> so, are there any craft maltsters who are making things like like crystal malts, or is that like so equipment intensive that they're kind of staying away from it? Um, one maltster in particular that does some really cool stuff with like roasting and things is Troubadour Maltings down in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Chris Gooley, and uh, he, he runs that. He has a background in coffee roasting. Um, Oh, that has, makes sense. Yeah, so he, he originally was a coffee roaster, and he re- la- just this last year bought um, one of Bueller's roaster machine. They have a roaster. It's like it's really dope looking. It's it looks like a spaceship thing. Like uh, <laughs> cool. We, last year at the Craft Malt Conference, we had our like post conference party kind of just chill <laughs> event um, at Troubadour Maltings in their shop, and. Uh, Chris Gooley had like a turn t- he had t- turntables set up by the roaster and like was playing all these awesome records and it was just and you know there was craft beer and maltsters and it was great it was super fun but um, Chris is yeah. Chris is making some really cool crystal and roasted malts and I would go to him if I wanted to get something specific um, yeah. Man, that's cool. I'm definitely going to have to uh, start examining this uh, resources page and, and seeing what's out there and uh, expanding my horizons. I've I've tried quite a few different ones from here in the Pacific Northwest, but mm-hmm. that's uh, that's been pretty much my limit other than a little bit of the Gladfield that I snuck home from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. I, I probably yeah, shouldn't well, admit that. If you, if you want any Montana malt, let me know. Um, we have a few craft malters uh, here in Montana. Um Galton Valley Malt Company and uh, Montana Craft Malt and Farm Power Malt. Uh, so, wow, 
if you if you're interested in anything of there, that there's there's some interesting things to look at. So you guys do like a a yearly craft malt cup, is that correct? So yes, we so we have a craft malt conference, and then in tandem with that, we always run a malt cup competition. So, uh, and then this year we uh, had two categories. It's only been around for three years, so I want to make that clear. Like it's a really really young competition. It's uh, and it's it's still evolving and will grow and change probably in the years ahead, but. Uh, the malt uh, styles are something that aren't clearly defined yet. Um, I mean, there's some definition, you know, like through John Mallett's book and whatnot and, and other malting books that for kind of the traditional malts, um, you know, and so as a guild, we're trying to work to kind of similar to how like the BA and BJCP do uh form some guidelines around malt styles and uh, the malt cup plays a big role in that because that it's a way for us to get a really big subset of data to be able to kind of really dial in on you know what characteristics make the best malt uh, in that particular style so this year we did pale and pilsner um i believe we had entries from almost 30 different maltsters around the world um it might have been more than that actually but um, quite, just a lot of great high-quality malts, and um, the cool thing was is that the top oh, the top winning malt came out of Oregon. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, Gold Rush, Gold, oh, Rush Gold Rush malt. Rush. Yeah. Over Tom, in Baker right? City. Um, yeah. Old Tom, yeah, Tom Hutchinson, he, great guy, lovely guy. Great um, guy, yeah. He's so sweet. And uh, anyways, yeah, he won both gold medals in Pilsner and Pale and took home the malt cup, which is the like rotating trophy we have. Wow, um, both Pils and Pale. That's amazing. Yeah. So some of, got, some of your local malt, Denny, is some of the best <laughs> in the world. Um, yeah, well, I'm not surprised by that. I got a bag of malt from him once that he was calling Eureka because it was kind of a mistake malt. He, I think he was going to try and – make something like Munich or Crystal or something, but he didn't. He had to leave town and didn't get it steeped long enough, so he tried. He went ahead and roasted it anyway. Anyway, it was one of those one-off kinds of things. It was a great malt, and I'm kind of sad wow. there's no more. Yeah, the malt cup was great, though, this year. Uh, you know, Tom take, took home gold medals in both categories, and, you know... Root shoot malting down in Colorado got another oh, yeah. medal. Um, I know those guys too. They're great, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So I can just give you a quick rundown of the results here. We the the so the Pilsner the silver medal went to that Italian monster that I told you about, um, and then Bron their name was Malteria Italiana Artigianale, um, and and it's also it's like a brewery with its own malt house basically. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah, so it's an Italian maltsters slash brewer. Um, and uh, then the bronze medal went to Admiral for their Pilsner malt. Um, and then gold was, uh, gold for pale went obviously to Tom, it's a gold rush, and then silver, Troubadour maltings. Uh, and bronze was root shoot. So for the pale. Wow. Wow. And you, do you like have like kind of like, BJCP like standards that you're looking at for these, yes. or is it just like yes, that's a damn do. good malt? Okay. 
So we do a really um, kind of in-depth uh, malt quality analysis first off, so that all the samples are run by the Montana State University uh, Barley Malt and Brewing Quality Lab here in Bozeman, actually. And uh, Hannah Turner, that that uh, is the director of the lab over there, she is she's basically the competition manager for the, the Malt Cup and um, kind of takes care of of wrangling all the entries that come in and, and her staff runs malt quality analysis testing on them in the lab and um, so that's kind of our first round of uh, judging that happens it's all very science-based you know does it meet the specs the established uh, style guideline specs that, that this malt is supposed to you know for factors like protein and moisture and um, fan and uh, beta-glucans and, you know, right, <laughs> alpha-amylase right. and all that, those things that you want to, you want, you know, in a particular range on a malt analysis. And then right. the second round of judging is very much more focused on sensory. And so we do hot, steep sensory analysis on all the entries that make it to that round. And uh, use we work with Draft Lab, which you may be familiar with. Um, it's a, I am indeed. Sensory-based um, smartphone app that uh, people can use to evaluate products for sensory, and it's mostly used in the beer industry. Um, but uh, there's other applications, and so we use it for for hot steep uh, sensory analysis. And um, it's a great way for us to to collect all the data from. We had 83 judges this year, Denny. It was like crazy. Um, I I was the the judge wrangler and um, worked <laughs> out, uh, you know, contacting all these people that we needed uh, to help us pull this off. And so what we ended up doing was, once you know, we got we needed help with the sensory round mostly. Um, so you need a lot of people to do sensory, and you need at least three people in a location to be able to have enough data, you know, from that group of people to do it properly. And so we ended up with 83 individual judges at like 24 locations or something like that across the country. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, these were people at malt houses. These were brewers. Uh, there were distillers involved. There were researchers. There were um, just a lot of different people from across the supply chain with diverse experience in beer and a lot of advanced Cicerones and, and certified Cicerone folks as well. And um, so I, I think people can feel really confident that like they're, they're this competition, the malts get really well vetted and they get vetted by some of the, you know, some really great people in the industry that know what they're doing and can really point out what makes a good malt um, on the, on the flavor side. So um yeah, it's a it's it's a growing thing, and we hope to you know continue to evolve it and 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 grow it and, and include more malt categories as we. I think going forward, we're gonna keep pale and pilsner since they're you know two very uh, critical base malts that are used in so many beers, um, and uh, we'll we'll probably uh, then start expanding into other categories like light Munich or Vienna or something like that. Boy, that is a really in-depth judging process, though. That really is well, astounding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 quite a bit more daunting, I feel like, than judging beer in just the aspect that you have to do all the laboratory analysis on it initially. Right. 
Um, you know, beer doesn't go through that. Beer judging is more about the, it's really mostly about the sensory experience and, uh, right, exactly. you know, what nobody's what running. Tastes like is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about flavor with the beer and with malt. It's like, no, it has to meet these specific analytical guidelines that have been set first because it has to be functional. You can't, you have to have a functional malt for the brewer to be able to make a good beer first. So, right. Um, right. Yeah, it has to meet certain functions of its of its uh, you know just chemical makeup um, before we can evaluate the flavor side. So before we wrap things up here, is there anything we missed? Is there anything that uh, you want to tell people about craft malt or the guild or anything that we haven't talked about? Mm, if you know, I think another resource on our website that might be good to point out is the under. On the resource tab, there's also the Craft Malt Finder page, um, and that page is just a it's it's got a, a little Google map with little pins on it of where all the Craft Maltsters Guild member malt houses are um, in both Canada and uh, in the U.S. So, um, you know, if I'm looking at it right now, that yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, really so cool. If you can't find, say, a homebrew shop in your area that has craft malt, sometimes you can just reach directly out to the malt house themselves. Um, a lot of these craft malt houses are very small, and you know they're totally willing to 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 work with somebody that's very interested in their product um, and send them some samples. Or you know, if they're local, you might even be able to just get a tour. Um, some of them are are very willing to you know educate the community about you know what they do so uh yeah i would just say like if you can't find it at your local homebrew store like go and and see if you can actually find a molster in your area that would be willing to uh tell you more about their what they do and and maybe give you something let you uh buy some of their product directly yeah yeah, really, and it, it's definitely worth your while if you haven't worked with craft malt before to get out there and try some and find out uh, how, how much different it is from big malt. And uh, you know, the like we were saying earlier, the flavors are different and they're just so much bigger. You know, it, it's definitely worth yeah. taking some time to seek yeah. it out. I think that so. you know, in in the end, really, what craft malt's done as a whole is. It's reinvigorated the whole conversation around malt in general. Like we're just we're thinking well, about it in different ways now, um, and because we have all these like small and independent craft monsters around the country that are trying new things and having to you know adapt to their local environment to you know figure out how to grow barley there. Maybe it hasn't been grown there in years. Like um, it's it's just it's it's creating so many more like other ripple effects throughout uh, agriculture and just like the focus on local food and, um, and, and also in the beer industry, it's just re evolving. It's, it's changing that conversation around malt as the foundation of flavor in beer and um, making brewers think differently about how they're using it. Yeah. I want to see things get to the point where people are not just asking about what kind of hops are in a beer, but what kind of malt is in it also. Right. Like, is this, is, is this, is there some biscuit mold in there? <laughs> you know, like, something like that. Like, you want somebody to, like, yeah. point out something cool, like, oh, where did you get this English pale ale mold? Uh, you know, or something like that. Um, yeah. 
Right. It just, it, it, and it's then, so and, totally and, different. And in that regard, it's, you know, it's up to us to, con- to continue on the craft malt front to just continue that conversation with brewers and, and to drive home the, you know, the, the fact that there's more to malt than just, you know, two row. <laughs> it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not just it's, two row. It's probably a specific variety. It was probably grown in a specific region. You know, like I know most of the big malt you're getting is very much, it's blended. It's from a lot of different places and that's why it's so consistent. And, and so I guess, Less flavorful. <laughs> um, bland. Let's let's just say it. Bland. Well, I'll let you say it. <laughs> okay, I, I said it. I'm. I don't mind. You know, I got nothing to lose. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, uh, I, I, I think yeah, we've it's it's pushing the boundaries and around all of that kind of stuff, and and uh, I'm excited to see where things go in the years ahead here and. Yeah, that's that's really the uh, the exciting part is to see where all this is going because it, it's so early on in the whole craft malt world. Oh yeah, uh, I mean yeah, we I'm literally the- like only we just did our first benchmarking study in like 2019. So I mean we're so young. <laughs> <laughs> really, really. Well, that's that's great because it means that there's a lot of exciting stuff ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been talking to Jesse Bussard, the uh, executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild today. Jesse, thank you so much for your time joining us. This is like really fascinating stuff, and I'm really glad that I can help get the word out to people. Well, Denny, we appreciate it. Uh, I am, was really glad to be here, and I enjoyed the conversation. Cool. Well, uh, I'll, I'll see you around on Facebook, no doubt. Awesome. Well, you take care, and uh, we'll chat again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, so uh, your thoughts on malt, Drew? Malt is good. Use more malt. And use more good <laughs> local malt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, with all the IPAs going around these days, uh, we may need to start actually dry malting the beers to get some semblance of balance in them, huh? Well, you know, and it's funny that you mentioned that because I had last night a another beer from uh, uh, actually Jack's Abbey out of uh, Massachusetts, and they uh, I had their shipping out from Boston, uh, and it was like this big chewy, um, like a very toasted Vienna, and it I swear it almost confused me because it had color and a ton of malt flavor and very little hops. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's great. Uh, let me see. I was going to I was going to make a comment about something. Did you want to call? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about uh, Gold Rush. Okay, go for it. Uh, um, and so you know, we were talking about the craft malt cup. Um, we were talking about the craft malt cup too in there, and uh, you, we'll put a link to uh, the video of that on our website so you guys can check it out. But I just was really, really happy to find out that the top pale and pills malts were both from uh, Tom Hutchinson at Gold Rush Malt here in Oregon. Uh, it's really cool. I haven't worked with either one of those, but I've worked with some of Tom's other malts. And they are delicious and well done. So uh, good on you, Tom, and good on Oregon. We have a number of great craft maltsters here. Well, and we had our friends from uh, what Root Shoot One. I mean, I mean there's a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot of, a lot of good names in there winning 
different awards. So I'm happy to see that the craft malt is gaining some attention and hopefully the whole work of the guild is really to promote the idea of craft malt. So hopefully their work will actually take some root. <laughs> root shoot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just want to really emphasize that if you guys have been uh, brewing with just like big malt and I don't, I'm not meaning to diss anybody here, but if you've been brewing with the uh, breeze and great Western and raw and some of those malts, I think that you would really, really appreciate trying a bag of craft malt and seeing what the difference is. Absolutely. All right. I think it's time for us to get the hell out of here. Okay. We're going to wrap this show up when we come back, so stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and it's time for our question and answer period. Now, don't forget, as I said, 132, episode 132, will be an all Q&A show, which means that we need a lot of questions in order to fill up that content time. Make sure you get us your questions by emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE, 626-765-1-ALE. One ale. And getting into, uh, this week's questions, we have two and they're actually kind of both right along the same line. So yeah, Denny, they are. Denny, you're going to, uh, I think this is your turn to talk. So first one comes from David Shell of Cedar Rapids and uh, David has written in before and hi, David. Um, <laughs> he said, I will be doing a Russian Imperial stout soon. The calculated OG is about a 1.110. I plan to use Y yeast 1272 American ale yeast two. I have two pouches and plan to pitch both at the same time, but I had a thought, which is sometimes dangerous. Agreed. That is to pitch one pouch at the beginning and then pitch the second pouch when the coison begins to lessen. Good idea or overthinking it. Each year I like to brew a style I haven't done before. This is my first Russian Imperial Stout. Any additional advice or tips? Why don't we tackle the yeast part first? Yeah, okay. I would have to say that I would... My first question is... Why? I mean, do you have a reason that you want to do it this way, David? Uh, do you perceive some sort of advantage to doing it? Or is it just one of those things where you're going, well, I could do this too, but without really thinking about what it means? Um, I would say that you want to get all that yeast in there right away. And obviously, you know, we're not the kinds of guys to be overly concerned about cell count, which is why we use the shaken, not stirred starter method. But on the other hand, not enough cell count can be an issue also. I would say I would get both of those packs in there right away at the beginning because I just can't see that there would be any advantage whatsoever to waiting and adding the second one later and in the meantime under pitching when you're at the beginning of the batch. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, man? Make a starter beer. 
Make a start. Yeah, well, that's, that. yeah, that's that's what that's what I would do. Obviously, uh, I'm not even sure that two packs is going to be enough for that. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, doing a starter beer is a great way because you not only build up a lot of healthy yeast, you get another batch of beer out of it. So. You know, that's that would be my number one recommendation, David. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, put them both in there from the get-go. I just cannot see any reason that you would want to wait on the second one. Yep. And then following up on that, the uh, tips about Russian Imperial Stout, don't use as much black malt as you think that you want to, because, uh, or at the very least, don't use all big amounts of roasted barley unless you like ashy-tasting beers. And the other one is... Either do open fermentation or blow off tube on that. Don't leave an airlock in there unless you like to clean your ceiling. Unless you have a 15-gallon fermenter for a 10-gallon batch or something like that. The other thing that I'll mention is uh, when I started brewing low those many years ago, it was very common to add a touch of brewer's licorice to an imperial stout. And it really made for a very interesting flavor. I really liked it. Should you get the wild hair to do that, Go easy on it, because while it can be a really good addition, too much will make a beer that you just do not want to drink. I can't even think of the last time I saw Brewer's Licorice. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, too, and it popped into my mind. I mean, I know that, oh, geez, 15 years ago, something like that, uh, you'd see them around, but I just can't remember the last time I saw it. So maybe we'll uh, restart a trend here, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and for those of you who do see it, I mean, Brewer's Licorice really kind of comes like looking like one of those old candy cane type sticks, you know, and not candy cane flavor, but like the old uh, sugar sticks that you used to be able to get in a five and dime. Uh, only don't try and eat it because, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Intense doesn't even begin to describe it. All right. And then our second question comes from Justin Seck, who uh, emailed us on Facebook, or not emailed us, but messaged us on Facebook. It says, I have a 10-gallon brew easy, so I do 10-gallon batches. According to your shaken, not stirred method, I would need at least an 8-liter container, if not 10, as you use 5-liter for a 1-liter starter. Yeah, follow the math here, folks. Um, do you have recommendations of what containers to buy of that size that are budget options and or alternatives? Vincenzo. Justin, buddy, you're trying to do something there that shaken, not stirred was never intended to do. Um, number one, I would not try and make uh, like a, a 10 gallon starter out of one pack by putting it into twice as much wort. Um, that's really not what the method is about. And again, I am surmising here, and I really should uh, probably run this by our friend Mark Vandetta, who uh, came up with the shaken, not stirred method. Um, but I would, I would say either do two separate starters, uh, you know, two separate shaken, not stirred starters uh, with uh, a pack of yeast in each, or wait for it, brew another batch and use the slurry for that. Um, you know, huh. yeah, I mean, it's a theme. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we seem to be coming back to that over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, don't try and make shaking not stirred into something it isn't. Uh, think around it. So, like I said, either make two separate starters for the batch which is something that I have done uh, before when I'm making a large batch. Although, again, my preference is to harvest the slurry from another batch and use that. There you go. All right. 
And that's our last question for today. Like I said, uh, remember, episode 132 is going to be an all-Q&A show, so get your questions in, podcast at experimentalbrew.com, questions at experimentalbrew.com, or text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. And now, it's time for a quick tip. Denny. All right. Uh, the quick tip is, as often happens, uh, kind of uh, brought to my mind by questions I've seen on Facebook. And since this is the malt show, let's have a malt topic. A lot of people ask how long you can keep a bag of malt. The answer is a long time if it's stored well. I have lately been working with uh, eight-year-old bags of both uh, RAR and, uh, and best malts. They were stored in unopened bags in a plastic uh, storage tub uh, in reasonably dry, reasonably cool conditions, and they have been just great. The flavor is wonderful. I'm getting the extraction I would expect to get. No difference at all. Um, I have had really good luck keeping an open bag of malt in the same conditions for yeah, close to a year, you know, and even crushed malt. My, my own experience is that uh, five months under good storage conditions is absolutely fine. Uh, when we did this experiment on the show many years ago, it seems like somebody wrote in and said that Brees claims that their pre-crushed malt in an unopened bag is good for two years. So the the answer is that malt lasts a lot longer than you think it does if you take care of it. And uh, one good test, a, a quick and easy test, is to just chew a kernel. If they're still crunchy, the malt is good. If they're squishy, the malt is not good. Yeah, and to further on to that, you know, I don't tend to store a lot of uh, pre-crushed malt, but I do store barley for years and years, and I just have it all in uh, vittle vaults or other hermetically sealed type things, and they sit in my garage, which fluctuates by a good number of degrees per year. And you know what? Five-year-old malt still works pretty damn well. Yeah, I mean, I think like many things, uh, there's... Uh theory and there's reality and you know what i say about that <laughs> exactly all right and now something other than beer because life is not just about beer even though well sometimes it is and i'm sure for a number of the older nerds out there in the audience if i say the name james burke you know exactly who i'm talking about oh yeah yeah, and so James Burke is probably most famous to those of us who are older geeks as being the Funny and charming and um, very erudite host of a series of programs called Connections. And Connections existed, remember, back in the day before the web. But it was like this whole idea of like, well, if we start here, how do we get someplace completely and totally different? Like, you know, how does, you know, how does something that happened in the Renaissance lead to us having a space shuttle launch? And, you know, he'd go through a web of history trying to trace, like, you know, all these little things that have happened over time that, yeah, you can kind of draw a connection between the two. And he hasn't done one of those connection programs in a while, uh, but he's been doing other things. And I got really, really excited because about five weeks back, 
he started he started to have these like 15 minute long essays appearing on BBC Radio, and they're all about you know well they're very Burkean they're not quite connections but you know they're a science note series on you know enlightenment and romance and impression and and all this sort of stuff and again they're 14 minutes long they're they're little bite-sized nuggets of James Burke and if you're like me and you absolutely adore connections go get yourself some James Burke in your ears yeah that was that was a killer show man i loved it there you go and we hope that you loved the show just as much <laughs> Really, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. You can find me mainly on Facebook and the AHA discussion forum, but I get around. Don't forget that. <laughs> Don't forget that if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and we don't blame you if you do that, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And as we've told you quite a few times today, you can also leave us a voicemail, shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. And don't forget, you can send in your questions for the all Q&A episode to podcast at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 